to keep up with what's going on in our nation and the world. Uh, the Chinese, you may have seen, are having drought in about half the country, terrible droughts. And in the other half the country, they're having terrible floods, uh, both of which destroy crops. And there is a major uh, dam that was poorly engineered to start with that is about to collapse over there. I think it sped from three rivers, maybe, uh, including the Yangtze, which is a huge one. And if that collapses, they're apparently right now evacuating at least 34 million people from below that dam. So things continue to get worse here, there, and everywhere. About all you read about in America anymore is masks, but there's still stuff going on in the world. The locust plagues are still going on. And I saw pictures from uh, Argentina yesterday where cattle and horses are buried in snow above their heads, and the sheep are well below the snow level. Uh, same thing happening in Iran. They've had, they had snow 15 feet deep, and I think over about a two, three day period. They got the same problem. It's killing the animals. They, they're trapped in the snow. They can't be fed, can't get to them. And there was one other place that had snow like that. I forget now where it was. But, uh, very, very unusual conditions. And here, uh, if you care to take the time, there was an article by Dave Hodges this morning, a second part of the series, a podcast, no, it was an article he wrote on, so it's posted on Steve Quayle. But, uh, he said it's over. Uh, we're subjugated. Once you get the whole country to wear masks, about everywhere you go, they're pretty well done. They're not going to resist much. And that he said, a year from now, you won't be wondering about whether there's a civil war. You're, a year from now, he said, you're going to be looking for a place to hide and some food. Uh, that's his prediction. Uh, and another one I read expects the dollar to fall below the 80% uh, percent mark. And it's falling. It was down to 92.8. It's falling fairly rapidly. And once it hits that point, he says it will probably just collapse. And uh, America will lose everything we've got. Of course, you and I have been expecting a financial collapse for a long time because God said so. And we've read those scriptures. But we're no longer looking toward a time when these things will be happening. They are happening now. They will only get worse. When God says there in Revelation 18 that our destruction will come in a day, uh, in Scripture a day is, is a year, can be as a thousand years, but it isn't talking about that there. Uh, but once this COVID thing hit, it wasn't long until there were tankers, uh, cargo ships sitting off of our coast with no place to dock, no place to land, no way to unload. And Revelation makes it very clear there that the shipmasters would sit out at sea and wail because there's no place to take their cargo. So that is going to get worse. But let's be aware it is already occurring. Uh, it's, it's here. And it is only going to get worse in time. So over a period of a year between last January, February, until this coming January, February, I expect it to be a whole lot worse than it is today. Because once God unleashes Satan, turns him loose, he becomes more apparent, more obvious, he can do more things that he was restrained from doing in the past, and you will see that. Uh, his people who worship him, and follow his orders, have been given more power and cut loose more. And the demons have as well. So be aware and be ready to rebuke because they hate us more than they hate anybody else on earth. You, you have to understand that. Satan would rather see you and me and the members of God's church, wherever they are, destroyed 
than anyone else. The rest are in his pocket. He's got them where he wants them. He's after the church. And I've said it before, when he's cast down from heaven for the last time there in Revelation 12, he immediately goes after the church. He didn't go after the Methodists or the Baptists or the Catholics. He didn't go after the evangelicals. He didn't go after the Hindus or the Muslims. He goes after those commandment keepers who have the Spirit of God. He knows who they are. God's Spirit creates a light that somebody on the street in St. George doesn't see, but Satan does. And he knows what that light means. It's the light of God that shines from those who have his spirit. So uh, let's be aware of what we're up against. As we were told by Paul, we fight against spiritual spiritual powers, uh, not against the physical. So, yeah, some physical, but mostly against principalities and powers of the air. And Satan is being unleashed worldwide. So you're going to see things worsen, I think, very rapidly. And we need to be as close to God as we can be and be as close to each other as we can be and support and help and strengthen one another uh, against what is coming or what is here but getting worse. Let me rephrase that. I've been saying what is coming now for 50, 60 years. Uh, it's not coming anymore. It's here. Now I need to rephrase that. That which is getting worse, it's already here. It just hit me the other day. Well, I've been waiting to see when everything would stop and these merchants would be howling out on the seas. And I suddenly realized, hey, it's already happening. It's just going to get to be more of it and worse (laughs) until trade is cut off and we have nothing to eat. And other countries are suffering drought and loss of crops. And dry as it is here right now, they're having flooding in Mississippi and they're got thousands and thousands of acres that can't produce for the second year in a row. So uh, God kind of put us in a bubble a little bit out here where we're not right in the middle of all these cities and all that's going on, but it's getting worse and worse day by day. Portland now is basically downtown boarded up, and downtown is, is no more. You can shop in the suburbs, but... Uh, Downtown Portland's pretty well shut down, and that's happening more and more uh, across the country. Minneapolis is still working on getting rid of uh, all police, and of 278 police precincts that were interviewed recently, half of them had already had their funds cut, not off, but downsized. Well, the less cops you have on the street, the more crime there's going to be. And the crime rates are going up exponentially in the cities right now. So you who have escaped the city, be thankful. (laughs) Just be thankful. Things might seem bad here once in a while, but they're not as bad as they are there, and they're not going to get worse here. Well, maybe a little, but they're going to get worse there a whole lot faster. So we can be thankful that we're here, as Al said in the prayer, in peace and safety. I was thinking that this morning, sitting out in my backyard. The grass was green and the hummingbirds were flitting around. I thought, man, it's so nice to have peace. <laughs> no, Nothing bothering. A couple flies, but they became peaceful pretty quick because uh, I had much water. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we have at least a modicum of peace and opportunity here that many people are losing very rapidly. If you're sitting in a city today, you're afraid at night, and you're afraid in the day. And as one man put it to me up in Wyoming, he said, uh, if I, he was, he'd been a policeman most of his life, and he says, if I had a shop today, and anybody tried to come in my shop with a mask on, I would put them out. He'd say, I have security cameras here. And I don't know whether you're coming in here to rob me and kill me or whether you're coming in to buy something. 
and I need, my security cameras need a picture of you. And you're wearing that mask. I don't know who done it, <laughs> you know. So, he, he's just the opposite of the others. Get that mask off before you come in here. Makes sense. Anyway, enough of that. I'm going to Hebrews 11, first of all, here. This is called the faith chapter because in it, Paul recites a great number of people from the Old Testament who had been faithful to God and obedient to God out of all those millions of Israelites. Uh, I say quite a few. It's a, a mere handful compared to the amount of Israelites who had lived and that Moses had dealt with. But today we're going to talk about Abraham. And it's interesting to me that almost half this chapter is devoted to Abraham. There are a lot of notable people listed here. But Paul gave Abraham an awful lot of ink. He was the father of the faithful. Uh, and that is so very, very true. And yet today, I don't want to look at him under that title of father of the faithful because it is a a spiritual sounding term and a high sounding term and it certainly is deserved and he should be called that don't get me wrong but I want to look at him from a different perspective today that is as a personality or as a person because there's an awful lot important in his life that we could look at but let's look at it first of all kind of as the father of the faithful here in chapter 11 and see some of the things Paul had to say. Verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, didn't know it then, and he went out not knowing where he went. You and I, if we're going to take a trip, like to have a pretty good idea of where we're going to end up. We get out maps, we get on the internet, whatever. We uh, check destinations, we check airline tickets, we check uh, automobile routes, whatever. We want to know where we're headed, when we're going to get there, when we're going to come back. We need to be in the know, in other words. Now, here was a personality, a man, who was given instruction, and he didn't know, he wasn't told where to go. He says, I'm going to go send you after looking for a city. Oh, okay. Didn't give him any maps. Didn't give him any directions in particular. He just says, go find the land of Canaan. There's a city there for you. What would be your reaction? What if I, for instance, came to you and said, God has a purpose for you, and uh, I want you to go find out where that is. You'd be bewildered. Well, can you give me a clue? <laughs> what do you mean? I had God give me some instruction one time. And it was kind of bewildering in a way. It was in a dream, which I've told you about, in which he said, I want you to prepare a place for my people to come, and it's near here. Well, here was where I was. But he didn't say how near near was. And I didn't know whether it was 50 miles or 2,000 miles. Or I figured it was somewhere in the southwest U.S. Because that's where I was. But I had no clue. So I scratched my head and I said, what does he mean? What am I looking for? What kind of place? I had no idea of Zion or what the promised land was had not ever crossed my mind I know for decades I did have in mind that somehow America as a whole was a land of promise uh, I don't know why that because I'd always been told the promised land was over there in the sand dunes and so I believed that, 
But we knew we were part of Israel in this nation, thought Manasseh at the time. So I thought, well, in a larger sense, God's moved people on from the Middle East to here, so this must be some kind of a land of promise. And even some of our songs in our literature, we talk about this as a promised land. Elvis Presley had a song about going to the promised land. Uh, leaving Memphis and going to the promise. Well, he had in mind California. I don't look upon California particularly today as the promised land, but uh, it's getting to be a no-man's land, really. People are getting out of there. But we had this general idea, I guess, is what I'm saying. But I had no clue, and so I started searching about. Uh, I was in business, and a guy wanted to trade some land for mobile homes. And I had no way of buying the mobile homes to trade for the land, but I went around through Nevada and back up into northern Arizona along the Grand Canyon to look at the land he had, thinking, well, maybe that's the answer, because it was on my desk at the time. I got there and looked around and says, nah, this isn't it. And then kind of pigeonholed the whole thing for a while. Business was failing, went back to Alaska, and... uh it wasn't for a couple years after that that I began to realize, or God showed, the area he was talking about. So it was just a big question mark. I don't know what to do with that. I have no idea what to do with that. No clue. And yet it remained there in the back of my mind as something that, yeah, this has got to be done, but how, where, when, what, all those questions. He cleared the mysteries up later, but... He asked you to move out in the wilderness, and you've done it. You didn't really know how, why, or what at the time, but we realized that he's going to do a work, and that he wants us to be part of it, or he wouldn't have leaned our minds this direction. He has a purpose for us being here. It may not be foremost in our mind every day or every hour, because we lose track, we lose sight, we get busy with stuff and things and and we can be discouraged or frustrated or whatever. <coughs> and some truly have been and are gone. They're not with us anymore. Or they're still here and not with us anymore uh, because they lost the vision. They lost the purpose. They lost real logic. And therefore, they began to look at me or look at you or look at conditions and instead of to God and what He says. You look at me all the time, you're probably going to get discouraged. Okay? I look at me, I get discouraged. <laughs> you look at you, you get discouraged. You look at the Father and the Son, you get encouraged. There's a lot to be discouraged about you and me. And when we have our minds on ourselves and we recognize how futile and how weak and how small and how sinful we truly are, then it can be discouraging and it can be a sense of worry to us. That's why we keep our eyes on Christ. Remember Peter who could walk on water as long as he looked at the Savior? And the minute he thought, I can't do this, bloop, <laughs> He was spitting water. He could do it. He actually literally walked on water like Jesus was until he looked down and looked at himself and said, Peter can't do this. And Peter couldn't, but he could through Christ. Now, Abraham had to have had the attitude of looking faithfully to God. Because when God told him, I want you to do this, he just picked up and left. Didn't know where. He just moved. Wow, what an attitude. It reminds me a little bit of Samuel. Remember when Eli called him, or God called him, and he thought it was Eli. So he went, jumped up and ran trotting in there. Here am I. What can I do? What do you need? How can I help? What, you know, what do you need me for? Well, I didn't call you. 
Oh, went back to bed. Went to sleep. Samuel thought it was Eli again. Jumps up, runs in there. What do you need? What do you want? Did you call? I didn't call you. Go to bed. Quit waking me up. (laughs) Whatever was said. The third time, he realized, this ain't Eli. (laughs) This is somebody else talking to me. And he was all ears. But what I'm saying is there was a ready mind there. Paul uses that expression of a ready mind. Of what are you, whatever you want, I'm ready. Let's go. I used that expression with John Reitenbaugh once. Because uh, I traveled overseas with him a time or two and, and all over the country a few times. And uh, I said, now, don't worry. If you want to go to Chicago or Denver or L.A. or something, give me five minutes. If you want to go overseas, I need 15 minutes to go run home and get my toothbrush and kiss my wife goodbye. So I was letting him know, uh, you don't have to plan and worry as is Daryl going to be with me? Just tell me, and we'll do it. Whatever it is. Anytime, anywhere. Uh, I'm not always that way, but I was just letting him know he was the boss, and whatever he needed, I would just back and call. And I didn't need a whole lot of preparation. Now, it might have taken me a few minutes longer than that, but you get the point. It's the principle. So... We need to be of a ready mind to do whatever God says, whether we know what's going on or not. And I often tell myself, I may not know what God is doing. And indeed, many times, I do not know what God is doing. But I have a firm belief that He knows what He's doing, and that's all that matters. As long as he knows what he's doing, I just need to follow whatever he's doing. Now, my son Matt and I have had discussions about this, and I may have mentioned it a little bit last week, (coughs) about why Amanda, his wife, was almost killed. By the way, they had surgery on her wrist finally yesterday and took the tubes out and gave her a feeder in her stomach and so on. Got all the tubes out of her mouth so she can do physical therapy, and she's doing better. She can actually now kind of draw her eyebrows together, which she could not do before, just the eyelids. And when the physical therapy sat her up, she was able to turn her head just a little bit. So uh, there is some, a little bit of movement coming back, and it, uh, it appears now that she'll live, uh, unless there's some kind of a setback. She was in the edge of pneumonia. They said she had it, and then that kind of cleared up. So uh, Amanda's doing a little better. And now that the wrist is set and some of these other things are taken away, uh, there shouldn't be any real roadblocks to her therapy and her working toward getting her movement back. So things are looking good there. But as I think I told you last week, they had come out of a very... Bad church. And they'd been there 14 years. They'd quit keeping the holy days. They'd quit keeping the Sabbath. And everything that they knew. They're headed the right direction. They started doing those things again. And then she nearly gets killed. (coughs) And you wonder, why? Could God have prevented that? Easily. Uh, Could he have prevented the injury? Easily. Could he have let her die there? Easily. But he doesn't know at this point why that happened. I don't either. But God allowed it with people who are trying to get back to God. And Satan may have perpetrated it and God let it go so far and said, don't kill her. Remember Job? 
There are all kinds of things that could be there. And there may be some lessons that need to be learned by somebody somewhere. Maybe me included in considering everything. So, I don't know, and Matt doesn't know why. And as Amanda's laying there and her mind's working, she doesn't know why. But God knows why. In the question, in the problem. We trust God with our life and our death and our health and everything. We're in His hands. A popular song years ago, He got the whole world in His hands. We sang it around the campfires and everything else. Do we believe it? The whole world is in His hands. Now, He's going to let Satan kill over 90% of us, of the whole world population, in the next three, four, or five years. Well, make it six, seven years. Figure the last seven plagues, seven last plagues are about seven years away, I think. But he's going to allow that. But he's got a plan. We shouldn't worry. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, people who have no clue about the true God right now, going to have a chance, either millennium or the second resurrection, most in the second resurrection, and he's got it all worked out. He says most of them are going to be saved, ultimately. But they're unsavable, unsalvageable right now. And that's what Dave Hodges was saying in that article. He says our, our nation is unsalvageable. Those millions of jobs that have been lost are gone. Those Tens of thousands of businesses that closed are gone. There's no way for this to recover, especially since they're cracking down again now and going to make it even tighter. Because they got us where they want us. Now they're going to kill us. What was that little poem? Got you where I want you, now I'm going to eat you. Remember that one? That's Satan. <laughs> That's this world and its governments. So Abraham trusted God that God knew what he was doing. And if he said go, then he figured God had the power somewhere along the line to show him where and how to get there. So he just took off. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, that it would be a promised land. But even as he wandered through it, he didn't really know what it was, or where he was, or what he was doing, until he found the city. It says, for he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't looking for the Tower of Babel. That was made by Nimrod. He wasn't looking for Nineveh. He was looking for a city made by God. It's going to be different than the others. Realize that Abraham knew Shem. Shem was still alive when Abraham was born and was through a lot of Abraham's life. He lived 500 years after he begat his children, and there's about eight generations after that, and they started having kids when they were 29 to 35. So he lived well over 100 years probably after Abraham was born. So Abraham had access as a child and as he grew up to great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa. Uh, he was still around. So he knew some things. And then he switches to Sarah, who was beyond ability to conceive, and himself, who was as good as dead, and had a child. Then he says these died in faith, belief, trusting God, knowing God, knew what God was doing, and believing Him and trusting Him. And they hadn't received the promises, but having seen them way off, 
were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, Paul tells the early New Testament church that they were strangers and pilgrims and only ambassadors for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God wasn't here. They couldn't see it. Didn't know where it was. But they were persuaded that it was coming. And those also all died in the faith, not having received the promise after what Paul wrote. And we have had some of our friends and relatives and parents who died in the faith, persuaded of the kingdom of God, and it had not arrived when we originally thought that it should here at the end. But God knows what he's doing. I have no doubt my parents will be in the first resurrection. I watched them all my life be faithful to God and serve God and put him first in wealth and health and everything. That's just the way they were. They didn't go have operations. They got anointed. They got healed, and so did their children. But they finally died. They didn't get healed of that. <laughs> you don't get healed of death till the resurrection. But God says we're all going to do that. So... As they got older and older and they had more health problems and physical problems, no problem. You got one foot in the grave and one foot on a banana peel, good luck. God's not going to fix that. Now, he did tell us here, and I'm persuaded, that's one of the reasons I'm here, that here at the end, he's going to renew us. He's going to give us deer legs. He's going to make us able to work and build a temple, which we're basically getting incapable of now. He's going to do that. And I'm persuaded of it. So I'm here waiting for that time of restitution to come. I'm not here sitting saying, oh, I feel so bad, and I'm so sick, and I'm so old, and I'm so crippled, and I'm so whatever. I just need to lay down and die. Be in the resurrection, everything will be okay. What? Get over it. God called you here not to die. He called you here to be an example to the world as a sign and wonder of His ability to restore and recondition and use you as a sign and a wonder to the whole church and even to the world to some degree. You're going to quit on Him? Really? We're going to quit on God? Well, I know you called me out here for a reason. I, you could have died in New York or Chicago. You could have died in L.A. or Houston. He didn't call you out here to die. He called you out here to produce. Now, some have died. And I don't know what's the finality of all that. But he had more time for us here than we realized when we first got here. I didn't know what he was doing, but I know he knows what he's doing. He's still working with you. So, get over yourself. Do his bidding. Fulfill His promises. What do you do? Well, you can be praying. Television doesn't really help you a whole lot. Uh, you know, computer games don't help you a whole lot. Praying helps. Doing things for others helps. I mean, there are things that we could all do for each other. To serve and give and say, here am I. You need something? Here I am. See, that's part of the personality of Abraham. When God said, I got something for you to do, he said, let's go. What do you need? Now, on a daily basis, you might say, well, I'm in the shower right now. Can you wait a minute? Or, I'm tied up today, but I'll be there tomorrow. I mean, you know, you, you can show a ready mind and willingness, but then things have to be done logically and in order as well. So, 
but be ready. Now when he says you're going to have a kid, they both laughed. <laughs> Would kind of strike you funny in a way. I think Sarah, probably more than Abraham, kind of laughed in disbelief at first. Because she was the one that got on that God got onto about it, not Abraham. So he may have laughed thinking, oh yeah, right. But he believed it. And she may have thought, yeah, right. But she came to believe it pretty quickly. So they both were faithful and waited. And it happened. Now you see there's some tremendous examples here of doing what God says and believing God even though there's no way you could even possibly begin to think such a thing could happen. When I read Saul, I mean Isaiah 51 and 52 and 3 and 4, and he says we're going to have the Garden of Eden again there in Isaiah 51, before the millennium, and it's talking before the millennium, I have to believe him. Now what does he say back there? Let's go back there a minute. Hold your finger here in Hebrews 11. But this one is for us. Isaiah 51. Well, I'm going to go to 41 in a minute. I had it down. I didn't have this one down. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. That would be... You and me, right? We're following after righteousness is the reason we're here. You that seek the eternal, I hope that applies to all of us, look to the rock whence you were hewn, and the hole of the pit from whence you were digged. Then where does it say look? Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah that bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him, and increased him. So, what are we doing here today? We're reading Hebrews 11 and looking to Abraham and Sarah. And we go back to the prophecies for today, specifically, and it says, look at what Abraham and Sarah did. Echoing what I said earlier. I may not know what God is doing but God knows what He's doing. Just follow Him. Believe Him. Do what He says. And it'll happen. What does it say after this? For the Eternal shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and He will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert into the garden of the Eternal. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Talking to us, those who follow after righteousness, who seek the eternal. This isn't talking about the millennium. In the millennium, we will not be seeking righteousness. We will already be God. We will be righteous. We will not seek uh, God, because we'll be the bride of Christ and we'll be God. So this is talking about before that. And he says, look to Abraham and Sarah. Well, he's given us two examples. A, go. Okay, I'm heading out. And then two old people who are way beyond bearing children were told you're going to have one. Okay, you know what you're doing. I chuckled and then I said, all right, we'll wait. And they did, and it happened. And they never reached the new Jerusalem. They reached the physical Jerusalem, but not the new one. They died persuaded of what was to come. Verse 16, they desire a better country that is an heavenly one, a heavenly Jerusalem. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You know, it's, it's a sad thing if somebody asks you, is that your child? 
and you say, don't really want to answer that. What if somebody asks Hitler's mom, is that your child, that guy that's just over there killing those Jews? Hmm. That'd be a tough one to say, yep, that's my kid. I'm so proud of him. Nah. There'd be some shame there. There'd be some frustration there. There'd be some grudging admittal there, or admittance there, that that is my child. Well, here, because of Abraham's belief and Sarah's and their trust, he's not ashamed to call them his children. That's my son. I long to hear those words. Christ was, it was said of Christ by his father, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now after all that Christ had been through as a human on this earth and then through a horrible death, it must have sounded really good to hear his father say, I am well pleased with you, son. You did a wonderful job. Didn't say he was proud. Pride is not of God. But very pleased. Now, I don't expect God to ever say of me, I'm well pleased. I'd love to hear him say, though, I'm pleased. At least that much would be a wonderful thing to hear him say, Daryl, I'm pleased with you. Now, I look at myself today, as I said earlier, I can get discouraged pretty easily. If I look to him who's able to transform us and change us, then I can be encouraged. Paul looked at himself and says, Who can deliver me from this body of sin and death? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Things I want to think, I don't think right. Some of the things I do with my hands, I do wrong. Who can save me from this? Many name Christ. Only He can save us from what we are. So, if we want to please Him, then we submit to Him. And we come to the point where instead of a stench in His nostrils, we become sweet incense as our prayers go up. That's pleasing, isn't it? You, you smell something that really smells good to you. A perfume, an aftershave, a candle, meat on the grill. You smell something that's really pleasant to you, and you think, ah, that's nice. So you're pleased. I want to get to the point where God sniffs me down here and is pleased. I, I have trouble believing that yet. I do have trouble believing that because I know me. And you know you. So it's hard for us to grasp that God could be pleased with us. But as we obey and we serve and we respond to Him and serve Him, He becomes more and more pleased. It's like a baby with a diaper. How many times a day does a baby foul a diaper? Well, they wet them quite a few times, and they may mess them three, four, five, six, seven times. I don't know. I don't. They never kept count in a day. But we're we're really pleased when they get it down to once or twice. Oh wow, this is looking better. And you're really pleased the last time they do it and never do it again. Oh, wow, now we're really making progress. God's the same way with us. As we grow, as we change, He dislikes us less and likes us more. That's the direction we need to keep it going. We don't need to be discouraged because we're not there all the way. Paul was not discouraged. He was frustrated. And he said, I know me. And this isn't good, but God can save me from it. So Paul believed God and trusted. And he said, I may not know what you're doing, but you sure do. 
One more example here. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom God had said that in Isaac shall your seed be called. He had promised him, not through Ishmael, through Isaac. He knew that. Abraham was in a position where he had already been told, and he couldn't say, well, looks like he's going to have me kill Isaac off. He must have meant Ishmael. He, he must have made a mistake there. So I'll go ahead and kill Isaac like he tells me to do, and Ishmael will take his place. Is that the way he thought? He says, verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, for whence also he received this in a sign or a figure. He thought, resurrections don't happen just every day. But if he's going to have me kill Isaac, he said it's going to be through Isaac. I believe him. So if he has me plunge this knife in him, He's going to resurrect him. He believed that. He accounted that to be the case. So he just packed up and went off to sacrifice his son. And he had made peace in his own mind and emotions that since God had promised it would be through Isaac, then it would be. And if he wants me to sacrifice him, He's got a remedy. He'll bring him back. And you know what? If he had allowed him to kill him, he would have brought him back. Because he had made that promise. Do you begin to see a little bit through these examples why Abraham's the father of the faithful? Now, let's turn from this in a different direction, and we're not going to get through it all today. I can see that already. Let's go to Second uh, Chronicles 20. Second Chronicles 20. Now, I recited to you last week that God spoke to Moses eyeball to eyeball as to a friend. He didn't come right out and say... Moses is my friend, but he treated him as a friend and mentions that. Here, he makes it more emphatic. Verse 7 of Second Chronicles 20. And not you, our God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend forever. Abraham is God's friend. There's two forevers here. He gave the land forever, and he's going to be Abraham's friend forever. That's an undying friendship. Friendship forever. God had that much confidence and faith in Abraham. Now let's go to Isaiah 41. I think we're all pretty familiar with the fact that Herbert Armstrong's type ended in Isaiah 39 when his sons went out as eunuchs, unable to do anything into the world after he died. And a new work was to commence in chapter 40. Uh, a, a commission is given here to comfort God's people, to tell them that their war, their fight, their confusion is ending and that they will be blessed. And the glory of God would be revealed, which we just read in Isaiah 51, about Eden. But this isn't the millennium either. Verse 6 and 7 and 8 prove that. Because he says, what will I say? He says, well, the grass is going to wither. The flower is going to fade. God's going to blow on it. And the Word of God will live forever. And... That hadn't happened yet. Still hasn't happened yet. It's in the beginning stages now. God has turned Satan loose, and our nation is withering, and our people are withering, 
in the whole world is starting the process of withering and dying. So, if this was the millennium, there would be nothing withering. It would be all coming back to life. So this is prior to that, that this message is given. And you go on just one more chapter. It talks about raising up the righteous man from the east. He'll be from the north and he'll come from the east. I'm pretty sure I know who that is. I know where he's from and I know where he is. And then he tells us that we will encourage one another as we work to do what? Build a temple. Talks about the carpenter, the goldsmith, the uh, uh, the ones doing the welding or soldering. He says, verse 8, But you, Israel, spiritual Israel, the church here he's talking about, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Now, here he's not talking to the nation because it's withering. He's talking to those whom he's chosen to do a work. And he talks about the work they're doing, the building, the temple. And then he says, you came from my friend, Abraham. And then he encourages us. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, going to gather his 10% from all over the world, and called you from the chief men thereof, and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you, and not cast you away. Don't fear, for I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. This was millennial, we would already be God, and those in the millennium would not have any reason to be dismayed. So this is a church ahead of that. Don't be dismayed. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. So he's telling you and me, who are here, who are alive, who are called right now, not to worry. You know, we go through a transition here, brethren. We read these prophecies years ago, and we thought this was talking to the nation, all the peoples of Israel who were blood-related to Abraham. And once we began to understand that these prophecies were written first to the church, first and foremost to the church, and then they have a second application later to the physical nations. You had to begin to grasp that these scriptures were talking about us, the church. They were written about you and me. Now, I didn't have that perspective 30, 40, 50 years ago. Almost 30 now, but Forty, fifty years ago, I didn't have that perspective. It was still, well, that's the nation, and that's going to happen someday. We didn't take it as personally. But now, Paul said that the Scriptures were written for those of us on whom the ends of the world shall come. So the Scripture was written about us and for us. We don't need to get vain and egotistical about it. It's just what God is doing. And we need to accept that. And when we read these prophecies, and he says, be courageous, I will help you, he's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about all of us who are involved in the work from chapter, the beginning of chapter 40 on is who he's talking to. Take it personal. It's you that he intends to have the deer legs. It's not somebody living in St. Louis today that doesn't know the truth. It's you and others like us from the four corners of the earth who are going to be stirred to come. Those who seek righteousness. 
So Isaiah 41 is for you and me, as is chapter 51, about looking to Abraham and Isaac. Now, let's go back to uh, Genesis 12. Now, we've been through the life of Abraham in past years as well, but we need to read scriptures from many different perspectives and from many different angles because I can read a psalm today and get something out of it. I might read the same psalm next week and get something entirely different out of it because the words of God have such depth that they can be taken so many ways and so many different lessons learned from the very same Scripture. Each Scripture does not have just one meaning. They can have many meanings in many different aspects of our lives. Now let's look at Abraham then today, not as the father of the faithful per se, but as a personality, as a person. God calls him his friend. Now, he said back there, we just read, where we are his servants. And yet Christ, later on, after that was written, a long time after, offered us friendship just before he died. And we are his servants today still. I look upon myself as a slave of Christ. In the New Testament, it says we were purchased with a price. His death. And he paid the price of our life by dying for us. Therefore, he owns us. We are his slaves. We are to do his bidding at any and all times. Not only then are we his slaves, but he offered us friendship if we would do all that he says and follow his commands. So that's an upgrade over being just a slave. Now, a slave or a servant is bound to do everything he is told, whether he likes it or not. Okay? If you were a slave owner, you told that slave what to do. If he didn't do it, you put the whip to him. If you had a servant, you said, bring me my dinner. And he says, well, I don't feel like it right now. Then he was in trouble. Now, if you've had an upgrade to friend, you have to live up to the upgrade. Abraham was a friend of God. Why? Well, first of all, we've already been there. Haven't been to here yet, but we've been to chapter 11. First of all, he was willing. He wanted to do whatever God wanted him to do. So he was of, as Paul put it again, a ready mind. I'm ready. I want to do your bidding. I want to be your friend. How good a friend is it if you think about them and you think, well, I wonder if I could get so-and-so to do this for me. And then through your mind goes, eh, I don't know, he kind of had an owly attitude the other day. Uh, I don't know whether he'd be willing to do that for me or not. So, if you have to debate it, their readiness, their willingness, their desire to help, how good a friend really do you consider them? Now, if you have a friend that says, I'm your friend. Whatever you need, let me know. Tell me. You're not really afraid to go ask them, are you? Because they've already said, Hey, I'm ready. I'm your friend through thick and thin. Through whatever. Ups and downs. Marriage, divorce, whatever happens to you. Car accident. I'm here for you. I have your back. You have to be real careful because when people, some people say, I have your back, 
<laughs> they don't tell you they're carrying a knife for your back. But the one who says, I have your back and means it, I'll protect your back. I'll take care of your back. If anybody comes up and wants to stab you in the back, I will rebuke them. I'll protect you. You're my friend. I won't listen to their garbage. I'll cut them off. Because I'm your friend and I love you, and I will not tolerate them treating you that way. Oh. Now there's somebody you can trust a little more. There's somebody you can believe in. There's someone you'd love to have your back. I've done quite a bit of bear hunting in my life. And there are some hunters who said they're hunters. And I've seen them hunt. And I would not want them to have my back in a bear hunt. (laughs) I wouldn't want them there. Because I have no clue what they would do. Shoot me in the back, drop their gun and run. Shoot straight up or jack all their cartridges on the ground. Or just stand there and wet their pants. I don't know what they're going to do. But I had one that I trusted. When I went bear hunting, I'd say, George, I need you. He'd say, okay, let's go bear hunting. And I knew he could shoot straight, and I knew he wouldn't wet his pants, and I knew he'd be there. He'd take care of me. Now, we abused each other verbally at times, but we were good friends, in spite of our verbal abuse, it was all generally done in in good fun, in good attitudes. But if I wanted somebody at my back, it was George. What anybody else? He's the only one I trusted. Can your friends say that of you? I hope we can all come to that point that we can say, I have your back. You know what that would do? That would simply stop all gossip. It really would. Somebody starts to say something bad about one of you, you'd say, hey, wait a minute. That's not only God's son, but that's my friend. Shut up. Ooh. You know, people won't gossip if nobody will listen. They won't. As long as they have ears, they'll say it. So, how do you stop their mouth? That's the way to do it. You don't listen. Stops it. Right now. Puts the brakes on. Anyway... The Eternal had said to Abram, Get you out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you. Now that verse is really what Christ told us in the New Testament. He said, He that does not love me more than father, mother, brother, sister, or whatever, he is not my disciple. You have people who hang back because of friends or relatives or children or whatever, And they won't do what God says to do because they just cannot leave their children or cannot leave their mate or cannot leave their family or whatever. So they don't. He's looking for those who will leave any and everything and come and follow Him. Christ said, Let the dead bury their dead. Come and follow Me. There's people out there in the world, they don't know God, they don't know who God is, they don't obey God. Let somebody unconverted bury them. Come and follow me. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't bury your relatives if they die and you're around, but what he's truly saying is, put me first. If it comes to a question of whether you need to do something to obey me, or go bury a relative, come follow me and do what I say. 
And indeed, if you leave your relatives two, three thousand miles away, or five thousand miles away, or ten around the world, chances are they die and you may not be able to get back. Some cases you might, some cases you might not. But if there's something there that impedes your obedience to God, you need to make a choice to put God first. I'll give you an example. Somebody's, I forget now, brother or father or somebody, died in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, God commands us to keep the feast. He says it is a commanded assembly, a holy convocation. It's not optional. It's a holy convocation, and we are commanded to be there. So, if one of my relatives had died during the feast, I made up my mind ahead of time, long time ago, that I'd tell my cousins or uncles or somebody, you need to take care of this burial because I'm at God's feast. I'm not going to leave here to come bury an unconverted person, let the dead bury the dead, and I'm here to serve God. I've seen people do that and stay at the feast. I've also seen people leave on the second and third day of the feast to go back and bury their unconverted relatives. Now, which would God be the most pleased with? I think the point is there. Let the dead bury the dead, come and follow me. So, Abraham was doing just what Christ told us in the New Testament that we need to do. And yet here was a man in the Old Testament when nobody was converted and virtually everybody on earth was following anything but God. And God said, I want you to go. And he said, okay, I'll leave my father, I'll leave my mother, I'll leave my cousins, my uncles, my aunts. Where are we headed? Let's go. What a personality. What a person. I would want that kind of person to be my friend. So we're talking here, and the subject is, why was Abraham God's friend? What do you look for in a friend? What does God look for in a friend? And as we see, as we go through this more, and get more examples we're going to see why God would want him for a friend. And we can also see maybe better what we need to be in order for God to want us for a friend. So we're out of time, even though we only got to one verse in his life, but there's more. <laughs>